Turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Jesus stood, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and this and that he had said these things to her. I love this sense of bewilderment and the excitement that's caused the Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved by the news from Mary that Jesus' body was not there. This is my favourite account of the resurrection in the scriptures. Um, Mary's assumption is that they have taken his body. Whoever they are, we're not told. And so the race to the tomb commences with John getting there first, but Simon Peter pushing past him and going inside first to see for himself. They believe that he is not there, but they have not yet understood that he has been resurrected and they go home no doubt perplexed at what on earth is going on and what this might mean but Mary remains as she always did weeping at the tomb and this then she has this wonderful encounter with the risen Jesus who she initially wrongly perceives through her tears as the gardener that is until he calls her by name Mary what a wild ride these first disciples were on. The implausibility of all that was happening to the Jesus that they loved. You know, we were talking about this, or Dave Wiley was praying earlier in our prayer gathering about just the implausibility of the resurrection. You know, all this stuff that was happening to the Jesus they loved, his trial, his execution, and now his rising, their hopes of his reigning as king from Jerusalem, deposing this Roman occupying force was dashed as he died. And yet now they have this little glimmer of hope 
with the empty tomb and Mary's confession. Their finite human hearts must have been completely overwhelmed with emotion and the implausibility of all that was happening. I want to hold that idea just for a moment of the implausibility of all that was happening to them. From that story to this picture on the screen. Does anybody know what this is? It's a black hole. Contrary to the flurry of hilarious memes following the release of this picture, it's not, in fact, the Eye of Sauron, nor is it the end of Snoop Dogg's Blunt. Thanks to this image released by the Event Horizon Telescope Consortium on the 10th of April this month, for the first time we have direct evidence that a black hole is more than an astrophysical mathematical construct. A black hole is most definitely a thing. A few facts for the nerds among you. is Jack Rag here. He might be able to keep me writing this. But this particular black hole is 500 million trillion kilometres away. It measures 40 billion kilometres across. It is 3 million times the size of the Earth. The lead astronomer who was involved in this project of photographing this black hole said that um, what we see is larger than the size of our entire solar system. He said it is a mass 6.5 billion times that of the sun. It is one of the heaviest black holes that we think exists. It is an absolute monster, the heavyweight champions of black holes in the universe. Now, you all know what the band Muse were on about when they released that song, Supermassive Black Hole. This is that very bad boy. But I think this, this photo can help us grapple a little bit with how we can think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How so, you may ask. Um, let me explain. A black hole is a perfect example of something that we have believed in, even though we cannot see it or touch it. We trust the science and the mathematics that told us these things had to exist. In fact, even this new image released by the Event Horizon Telescope doesn't actually show the black hole itself. What it actually shows is the shadow of the black hole. I'm going to say this morning that black holes are real. They are exotic. They are strange. They are unexpected. They are well outside of our mundane experience. And yet... They are as real as the dirt under our feet and they are fundamental to how we understand our own galaxy and our own solar system was made possible. I think we can say the same thing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can say it is real, it is exotic, it is strange, it is well outside our mundane experience and yet it is as real as the dirt under our feet. It is fundamental to how we understand what the plans of God are in the earth and the heavens. If you want to go looking for it, there is a ton of stuff written about making the case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as being a real event that actually happened in history. The arguments briefly go something like this. They look at the reality of Jesus' life. Virtually all historians believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person in first century Palestine. Then they look at the finality of Jesus' execution, the detailed accounts that we have in scripture, 
ring true based on what we know about Roman and Jewish practices of the period from archaeological finds and from human physiology. These attest to the brutality of such executions which were preceded by a savage flogging followed by progressive asphyxiation. Jesus really was dead. Then we might look at the account, unaccountability of Jesus' body. You know, the quickest way to discredit this new Jesus movement would have been to produce the physical evidence that Jesus had indeed remained dead. But nobody did this. This does not show that Jesus rose from the dead. But the stubborn fact of the empty tomb needs to be accounted for. The accounts make it extremely unlikely that the body was stolen based on Roman practice of guarding posts, putting guards at these burial sites. Then we might look at the, inexplic- the inexplicability of Jesus' followers' transformation following his rising. You know, the first reported sites of Jesus after his resurrection were by women, a massively countercultural detail that is a mark of the authenticity of the stories. Then there is this incredible transformation of a group of weak, dispirited followers into the, incur- into the courageous core of the new Jesus movement. Not to mention those with strong reasons they remain sceptics. Think about Thomas, the doubting empiricist. Think about Jesus' half-brother James, who thought he was crazy initially at the beginning of his ministry. He became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Or think about Saul of Tarsus, the one-time persecutor of the new Jesus movement. These dramatic transformations are well explained if these people actually encountered the risen Jesus. But all that stuff, that's kind of like the evidence, that's like the photo of the shadow of a black hole, if you like. Maybe it's uh, also true to say that not all things worth knowing can be examined through simply a scientific or historic lens, which probably might open the door to another way of seeing, a different way of seeing, seeing with the eyes of faith. If we're honest with ourselves, we might admit that at times the entire gospel story just seems preposterous to us. A radical and even offensive story of love that is unlike anything else. And to be honest, it's precisely for that reason that I, and I'm sure many of you, actually want to be a part of this story. We could have gone into full apologetics mode this morning and given a full defense of the resurrection. And I think that's probably generally a fairly worthwhile thing to do. And there are sort of brilliant you know, resources out there that will allow you to do that if you want to. But instead, this morning I'm going to let this quote set the course for the rest of our morning. Um, in his commentary on Acts, uh, Will Willimon writes this. It'll be up on the screen. When you think about it, the quality of the church's life together is evidence for the truthfulness of the resurrection. The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. The tough task of interpreting the reality of a truth like the resurrection is not so much the scientific or the historical, how could a thing like this happen? But the ecclesiastical and the communal, why don't you people look more resurrected? Why don't 
we people look more resurrected. I think our time this morning would be better spent looking at this question. Why don't we people look more resurrected? I think there are many reasons why we as a people don't look more resurrected. I think there are many reasons why I personally don't look more resurrected. I don't mean the final resurrection thing where the great hope of the Christian life is that we will all be raised. I mean resurrected in the here and now. Or maybe more accurately, why don't we people in this community of Redeemer Central look more full of the power of the resurrection? I think of Paul's words here in Romans 8. He says, if the spirit who raised him, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I really, really love this community and the wonderful people that are a part of it. I love the many good things that emerge from our plans and our prayers. I love all the little signs of life that spring up here and there, little signs of us being a resurrected people. But if I'm truthful, I long for so much more. I long for more signs of God's manifest presence in our midst. I long for the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead to so touch us as a community and as individuals that we would be radically changed. I long for the presence of God in my own life in a deeper, richer, more tangible, more meaningful and real way. I long for this community to be a community of passionate spirit and truth worshippers that are sold out for the King and his kingdom. I long for us to be a community that will experience a time of refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord. It was so encouraging this week as we opened up the doors for the first time to the whole community in Redeemer to our prayer room out the back there. A week steeped in prayer, seeking God for our church, for our communities, for ourselves, for our city, for our land is a beautiful thing. And we're trusting that it's the beginning of such a time of refreshing for us as a community. I trust that Deeply contemplating the story of Jesus throughout Holy Week as a community has allowed many of us to fix our eyes afresh on our beautiful King Jesus. I don't think I'm alone in my longing for the Kingdom of God to come in a thousand different ways in and through this community. I don't think we've even seen a minuscule portion of what the Lord wants to do in and through Redeemer Central. I believe the Father's heart is for us to be a loving, welcoming, healing place where all can find a place at the table and encounter the heart of the Father and the welcome of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I believe the Father wants this community to be a place where people can discover that God has a plan for them, that they can discover how to walk out their purposes in him. I think the Father is calling us to be bold and courageous in these days to embody the beauty of the gospel of King Jesus. I think he's calling us to be a passionately worshipping, falling on our knees in prayer type of community that has joined our heart to his and is willing to count the cost and following where he leads. Here's the thing though. 
Here's the challenge this morning, if you like. We are never going to be able to step into all that the Father has for us unless more of us decide that we are all in. I loved how Dave put it last week. He challenged us that perhaps we're guilty of setting the course of our lives. And then we turn to Jesus and we ask him to get on it, get in on it, get in on our plans, to bless what we are doing. We invite him into our plans. How back to front have we maybe got that? How about we as a community ask Jesus, as our families, as, our, as individuals, what he would have us do? What are the plans that he would have us let down for? What are his plans that we should be stepping into? There really is no kingdom without a king. So I want to appeal to you this morning to go all in on that. I don't mean some kind of burnout prone all in that is all enthusiasm and gets swallowed up at the first sign of trouble, but a rested, trusting, committed, faithful all in that desires to see the power and the presence of God visit us as a community and transform both us and those that we reach out to. But I get it. I get there are reasons why we hold back. Some of us struggle with apathy. Some of us struggle with disappointment in our conception of the God we thought had our backs. Some of us If we're honest, they're just plain disobedient to what we know that God has spoken to us. Sometimes we go through seasons where turning up the odd Sunday is all we think we can manage for whatever reason. I get that. And bless you if you're here and it's just hard to be here. Come and be blessed. Come and find community and love and rest for your soul at the table of Jesus. Some of us are going through or have gone through a long season where we just don't know what we believe anymore. I've been there. Look, it's okay for something that wasn't working in the first place to actually die. For there to truly be resurrection on the other side, there actually has to be a death. You get this, yeah? Death to our old ways of being. Death to our false constructs about who we, who or what we thought God was and how he should act towards us. Let it die and in hope embrace the resurrection on the other side. But don't just create some kind of DIY cut and paste belief system that suits your own biases on the other side. Journey with others who are further along the journey than you. Ask questions. Embrace hope. I want you to look at this icon on the screen that's going to come up. It's called the Harrowing of Hades. And it depicts Christ as he entered into death. It shows him preaching to those who are held captive there, including our first parents, Adam and Eve. Jesus went through death and he defeated it from the inside and came out again into resurrected life. He now holds the keys of death and the grave, meaning that he has authority over them. You see, for there to be resurrection, death must actually be entered into. 
I want to ask you, what do you need to see die in your own life that you might embrace resurrection? What are you vainly trying to keep alive or hold on to that you know you should just let go of and trust that God has something far better on the other side? Kind of sounds like those words of Jesus. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But I want to be bold this morning and encourage you to make a change. To give your yes to the king of the kingdom. To come under the lordship of Jesus. He is the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth. He is our Lord. Don't you get it? Can you call him our Lord? This is personal. This is communal. It's about all of us. It's about us as individuals. Come and see the tomb where they laid our Lord. He is not here. He is risen. Hallelujah. Can you say this morning that he is your Lord? I'm going to take a stab at what I think might be going on. I think a part of it for some of us is that there's a kind of unbelief that has taken a hold of many of our hearts. It might be unbelief about some perceived foundational truth that has begun to undermine everything else in our life of faith. Or it might be unbelief that God really is good and that we can trust him. Or it might be unbelief that causes you to hold on to your stuff or the money that you have and not trust that will that God will give you all that you need if you release that into his purposes. I think there is a kind of unbelief that is the result of living in a consumer's culture like we do. It allows us to come here maybe a couple of Sundays a month as consumers of religious goods or for the social aspect, but not really sow ourselves into the life of this community and the expression of the kingdom that Jesus wants to see come into its fullness. There is an unbelief, I think, that strangles the idea that you can actually have a meaningful, tangible relationship with Jesus. I think there's a kind of unbelief that strangles faith, that feeds cynicism and can be toxic to our relationship with Jesus. I think there is a kind of unbelief that is a dangerous thing. And according to the scriptures, which say this in Hebrews, take care, brothers, Lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I want to encourage you this morning that if we discern in our own hearts that there has been unbelief, that we turn from that and we turn to Jesus. That we literally actually just change our minds about unbelief. We might pray that scriptural prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Listen to what Jesus might be saying to you this morning and take this opportunity to give him your yes, then let that yes lead to another yes 
and another and another. The Christian life is simply a series of yeses to what God is saying and being obedient in the moment to it. I want to encourage you, if you feel like unbelief is an issue for you, that you get with others, maybe through your table group or maybe just over coffee, and you share what is going on with you. But listen, do not remain in the place where you are. There is a much richer, fuller experience on the other side of the wilderness of unbelief that is waiting for you. There is resurrection on the other side of death. Let's jump back into our passage here. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. and Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I love that we have this example of Thomas, poor old doubting Thomas. He had to wait eight whole days before he could see for himself and put his hand in the Jesus side. Thomas struggled with unbelief that Jesus had risen, even though he'd seen the ministry of Jesus up close and personal. He'd seen Jesus heal the sick. He'd seen him raise the dead. He'd seen him um, cleanse lepers. He'd heard the story of the resurrection of Jesus from his pals, the other apostles who had seen him. And yet he still disbelieved until he saw him from himself. You think your unbelief today is bad? 2,000 years after the event. Think of this poor guy, Thomas, what a douchebag. It seems like the human condition is such that belief doesn't come easy to some of us. And yet, here we have this mini beatitude at the end of this passage. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and me. Jesus calls us blessed if we believe that he rose. I think there's a call in some of us to move from a place of apathy and into some kind of territory beyond that. 
I want to say this morning that it's not in the place of certainty. Because certainty is not the opposite of unbelief. Unbelief or apathy. I think a kind, a kind of faith-filled curiosity and embrace of mystery is perhaps the antidote to our apathy and unbelief. May we learn to embrace the mystery of Christ, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection. And in doing so, may we move out of a place of apathy and unbelief. But I do also love that the story of the resurrection is not the end of the story. It's not just resurrection. And then it's up to these bewildered followers of Jesus to just suck it up and get on with things themselves. In Luke's account, after Jesus appears to his disciples, he says this, It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I am sending the promise of my Father Stay until you're clothed with power. <laughs> I was telling Farron about the story of the resurrection and how Jesus then sent his spirit. And uh, I was asking him what he thought happened. And he said, uh, I think Jesus did like a ninja attack and then he kicked down 54 doors of people's hearts and that's how it all happened. And uh, <laughs> Listen, folks. That's not exactly what happened, but the promise of the Father is a reality. Jesus has ascended. He has sent the Holy Spirit. This isn't just for Bible times. The Holy Spirit has not left the building. He desires to come to his church. He desires to come and habitate with his people. He dwells with us and within us all who are in Christ, or indwelled by the Spirit. But I want to say to you, there is more. He desires to empower us for life, for the assignment that God has for us at this time. What does a resurrected life look like? What does a life in the Spirit look like? I want to use some of those phrases out of that wonderful prophetic passage for us as a community, Isaiah 61. I think it looks like beauty in place of ashes. I think it looks like the oil of gladness instead of mourning. I think it looks like a spirit of praise instead of heaviness. Listen, I want to say to you this morning that you are responsible for keeping the fire of love for Jesus aflame in your own life. We hate this message. We don't want the accept responsibility do we but listen here's a scripture that I want to use as a summary of what I think the Lord wants to say to us today Redeemer from Ephesians 5 and it's an ancient um, Christian hymn from the early church a line it says awake O sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine in you. Awake, 
O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. This is a call for us to wake up, church. They rise from the dead. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. I loved how Dave Armstrong put it in a little message that he put out uh, on one of the WhatsApp groups during the week. He said, the king would like to take his rightful place in the hearts of our community. He will not force himself. He will pursue. He will woo. He invites. He comes in grace and love. He comes to transform, to reorder our world, our priorities, our affections. It is the narrow way. He is Lord. I want to invite the band to come up as we finish. We're going to take bread and wine in a moment. Like Mary Magdalene at the tomb who could not see Jesus for her tears and mistook him for the gardener. He calls you, each of you, by name. Mary, will you recognise his voice this morning? I want to invite you as we sing and as we come forward to take bread and wine. I want to invite you by faith to touch the wind in Jesus' side this morning. To touch the scars in his hands. Do it by giving your yes to him. Express it by coming up to this table and taking bread and wine. This bread and wine is the broken body of Christ. Come touch the scars in his hands. Come put your hand in the wound in his side by taking this bread and wine. And I want to say that the prayer team will be available at the side if anything we've spoken to about this morning um, touches you and you'd like to receive prayer, especially if you would love to encounter more of the Holy Spirit in your life or if you believe that you suffer with apathy or or unbelief, please come and receive prayer. Let's let's sing and let's take bread and wine together. <laughs>